Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of Tradition with a Catholic Tea. My name is Paul Naranja, and in this episode, we will talk about the introduction to the document Sacrosanctum Concilium. And as we mentioned in the last episode, um, the first episode, the, we will be going over the documents of the Second Vatican Council, which uh, Pope Francis has asked us, the laity, to study uh, next year. And um, I decided to start with this doc- document, Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's the first document that was written from the council, and it's um, and for me, it's I think it's a great way to better understand the liturgy, especially the mass, because you know. Re- for all you Catholics out there, if there's one thing that we uh, we have all in common, we, we may have disagreeing points about a lot of things, um, but one thing that we all have in common is um, Mass that we hopefully go every Sunday. So if you did take the time to look up the Vatican, Vatican II or Sacrosanctum Concilium um, through Google or, or, or whatever online sources, you might notice there's a lot of politics involved or there's been a lot of debate a lot of things about um this council and and even especially this document um the biggest question well one of the biggest questions that uh you might that might come up is did we implement this document correctly you know from from this document sacrosanctum concilium um stems from there, the Roman Missal, the the book that um, that uh, instructs the priests how to how to perform liturgy, right? That that Roman Missal was uh, was updated since Sacrosanctum Concilium. Did we write that correctly? Did did we implement that correctly? And that's still you know many people have many different opinions about it. There is even a bigger question of um, should have the Vatican Council should have been should that have been done in the first place? Um, there's a lot of opinions about that as well. So my position in in all of this um, is that I believe the Holy Spirit has been guiding this church since Saint Peter, and you know in in the 60s. Um, the Holy Spirit called Pope John the Twenty Third to start this council, and he called Pope Paul the Sixth to continue and finish it. And this document was voted and approved in that council, and so it's an official document of the Church. And so you know, I so yes, I believe that this council has a purpose that God gave a purpose for this council, and. I know it's important. This this document helps define how we do our liturgies right now. So let's study it, right? Um, to learn about the expectations of, well, expectations of what the purpose of the liturgy, uh, the expe- expectations of the priest, and most importantly to us, the expectations of the laity. So I'll give a little context of Vatican II before we start with uh, the document. Now, when I mention Vatican II, it implies that there was a Vatican I, right? 
And there was. There was a Vatican I Council. Uh, it started in 1864 and ended in 1870, uh, led by Pope Pius IX. And it was called the Vatican Council because uh, this council actually met in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. There have been other church councils before in the past that have met in other cities, other places, um, like Nicaea, Constantinople, um, and others. But this was called Vatican Vatican I because it actually was held in the Vatican. It was, um, it was held because of a reaction to what was going on in the modern world. Uh, particular popular ideologies during the time of the 19th century, uh, rationalism, uh, a lot more secularism, uh, modernism, materialism, pantheism, like those sorts of ideologies were prevalent, um, still are in some sense, uh, but at least back then in the 19th century. So it was a reaction to that, as well as, um, and the biggest declaration from Vatican I was the proper definition of uh, papal infallibility. Um, if you don't know what papal infallibility is, it, it does not mean that anything that the Pope says is infallible or is true, uh, given the, the, um, the power of the Holy Spirit, the authority of God itself, right? It's not that. It's, um, it's papal infallibility is only when the Pope declares any doctrine about faith or morals, and he has to declare it um, in a particular way. Uh, he has to speak it, there's this term called ex cathedra, or from the chair, or that really refers to from the chair of Peter. So even if the popes mentioned something about the faith or about um, about morality, but it's let's say uh, in a a news interview or a or a tweet or a Facebook post or, or whatever, um, that's not specifically infallible, right? It has to be declared ex cathedra. So let's say the um, when. The doctrine of um, the Immaculate Conception was declared true um, uh, in the uh, in the mid eighteen hundreds. That that was documented um, by the Pope that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is true. And uh, when he cites it in this document, he refers to. Uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, infallible doctrines that are declared, um, it's not, again, it's not something that the Pope just says uh, in, in, in passing. It's, it's always, it's always got to be something, um, I mean, hopefully, something that is uh, meditated, prayed upon, um, that is... To, like discussed by other people, other bishops, other theologians. You know, it's 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 a big thing to declare anything infallible, and it's not uh, as as a Catholic. You know, we believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding this church and especially this Pope. And despite um, the many opinions other people may have about him, uh, we do believe that when it comes to faith and morals when it comes to doctrines of our church that he would guide pope francis um 
to declare anything infallible to be true, right? So again, Pope Francis can say a lot of things about a lot of things, and we may or may not agree with him. But when it comes down to the actual doctrines um, that a pope can declare, we believe when it comes to that, we believe the Holy Spirit will guide him to say something that is true. So on to Vatican II, which started in 1962 and ended in 1965. So this was about 100 years after Vatican I. Um, From what I understand, Vatican I was actually prematurely ended because of the Franco-Prussian War. So when that war started, uh, they had to end the council and bishops had to go back. You know, these kind of councils, they, they, they bring bishops from around the world, you know, to this one place. And when war breaks out, and if it's a war that affects many, many countries, then, um, you know, it, it definitely is understandable that the bishops need to go back home they need to tend their flock. They need to help out their, you know, the Catholics in in, in who are the Catholics that they're in charge of, and so they ended uh, Vatican I in 1870 when that war started. So after all that, and then Vatican II started in 62, uh, ended in 65. It started by Pope John the 23rd and ended by, uh, by Pope Paul the sixth. So Pope John the Twenty Third actually died on June third, nineteen sixty-three, and um, and when Pope Paul the Sixth became elected as the next Pope, um, he decided to start to continue the Council until until sixty-five. Now the big thing about this Council, the main purpose, was to is to evangelize the faith in new ways. Uh, let me just give you some um, some excerpts from Pope John the Twenty Third when his opening letter to the council uh, when the council opened. Quote: The greatest concern of the Ecumenical Council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. And another quote: The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing. And the way in which it is presented is another. So again, no doctrine is to be changed during this council, right? You know, no new doctrine is to be declared, like um, unlike uh, back in, for the Immaculate Conception in the 1800s. This is all about evangelizing, evangelizing the faith in new ways, right? Because it's been, you know, a hundred years since the last. Uh, last big council and even though the faith doesn't change the doctrines haven't changed but the culture has changed and therefore this is a big thing about like adapting our evangelization to the culture again we're not changing the doctrines we're not changing the faith but the way we present the faith so we can lead more people to christ that can change and that's the biggest thing um I think just from my own little uh, little meditation on on reading some of these documents, that it's to it's very important to know what can change and what cannot change within our faith, right? Like 
like what do we know about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, like that doesn't change. But the way we present it um, can change and probably should change. Again, so the, the whole purpose, though, is to bring others to Christ, right? That's our whole purpose. It's, it's to change not for the sake of changing, but for a goal, right? For a goal. And I think that's, that's really important um, when we study these documents. Where they, want to ch- they, they may want to, for example, Sacrosanctum Concilian, they want to res- restore and promote the liturgy and, um, and change the liturgy. But all of that has to be in order to build up the faith of the, of the laity and to promote and evangelize the world, right? That's the whole purpose. So again, changing something like the liturgy is not for the sake of change, but for the goal of building up the laity and evangelizing the world. So, quick overview of Sacrosanctum Concilium. It is made up of seven chapters. I'll go through them right now. Chapter one is the restoration and promotion of the liturgy. Chapter 2, the mystery of the Eucharist. Chapter 3, sacraments and sacramentals. Chapter 4, the divine office. Chapter 5, the liturgical year. Chapter 6, sacred music. And chapter 7, sacred art. So, just from, look, just from looking at the chapters, you can see that liturgy, when I say liturgy, it's not just the Mass. Right? It's... Um, it's well. We could also call the divine office. There is actually the liturgical year that's that's kind of based that uh, the mass is sort of based on, and there's there's obviously different aspects of the liturgy, um, and they cover two major ones. One is the music, and the other is art. Now, most documents from the Vatican or church documents in general, uh, Catholic church documents. Uh, if you've ever read any other documents before, they're usually divided up into paragraphs. Actually, the, even the catechism has almost 3,000 paragraphs. And if you've seen the actual catechism book, it's pretty darn thick. Um, so this document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, only has, compared to the catechism, only has 130 paragraphs. And so the introduction of the document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, consists of four paragraphs. It starts with the aim of the whole council. You notice this document is called Sacrosanctum Concilium, so it's the sacred council. And as I mentioned before, this was the first document from the council that was published. It talks about the uh, as it talks about the the main points of the council or, or the main the main goals of the council. Uh, one to increase the vigor. Of the Christian life. Two, to adapt to the needs of our times or places that are subject to change. Three, to promote unity among all Christians. And four, to help call the whole of mankind into the church. So again, as I mentioned before, increasing the vigor to the Christian life. So it's um, building up the laity, right? Adapting to the needs of the times on only in places where it's subject to change. Again, the key here is to recognize what can and cannot change, right? 
the the doctrines, the creed, like that cannot change. But there are the ways in which we we evangelize, the, the ways in which we present the faith that can change. Okay. The other thing is promoting the unity among all Christians. So there's already a sense of re- even reaching out to to non-Catholics. Right? There, there was actually another document in the Vatican from the Vatican Council uh, specifically about that um, unity among all Christians. Um, you might have heard the term ecumenic, ec- ecumenism. And finally, uh, help call the whole of mankind into the church. Again, to, to go out and evangelize. Right? So, given these primary aims of the council, they first decided to reform and promote the liturgy. And so, why? Why the liturgy? And so, it goes on and says that the liturgy is the way the church expresses the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the church. And when it talks about the nature of the church, um, it brings up this idea, this very, this very common idea you might hear about the Catholic Church, especially Catholic Church, is the both ands that um, that the church is human and divine, right? A, a group of human people, but it has a divine nature. That um, that we have visible traits and we have invisible traits of the church. That we are called to act, act throughout the world to to love and help the, the world and also to contemplate, to go inside ourselves and contemplate about, about God. Um, to be present in this world but recognize that this world is not our home. And so this, this idea of both an and um, idea is, is I believe one, one thing that they want to express um, about the church and the liturgy is one way to express that. So we should express that within the liturgy as well as by expressing that, that strengthens us to preach Christ to the world. Um, one of the possible endings of the Mass today, the priest might say, go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Or another one, another ending the priest could say is, go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Ete misse est, which, like, to go, you're sent out. Like, if you didn't know this, at the end of Mass, you know, we are sent out to the world to preach the gospel, right? We receive God in word by listening to the readings, to the gospel, and to the homily. And then we take in Christ Right? in the Eucharist. Right? We have this meal that um, represents, um, well, I'll get more to this later, but the, the, the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. We, we represent Christ, uh, Christ's Paschal mystery of his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We do that every Sunday. And so, strengthened by the Word, strengthened by the Eucharist, we are strengthened in the liturgy. We express our faith in the Mass. And then at the end, we are called to go and announce the Gospel of the Lord. And then at the end of the introduction to this document, uh, it just mentions some some other things here. The document will focus on the Roman Rite 
And if you didn't know this, uh, there are other, so rites as in R-I-T-E, but so the Roman rite, the, the Latin rite, which uh, I think majority of Catholics probably listening to this are probably familiar with, but there are other uh, rites that are not the Roman rite. So there are other ways of doing liturgy um, besides just the Roman rite. And uh, many of those rites, they're probably, they are considered in the Eastern Church. Eastern, there's an Eastern Catholic Church, and you might have heard of the Greek Orthodox Church. So these are churches, again, not, not in the West, from Rome and, and the West, um, but they are more like Eastern Europe, Russia, down to Egypt, probably North Africa, um, these churches have a very have a, a different history than, like, say, the West, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. But the difference here is that these Eastern Catholic churches are in communion with the Pope. That's the big difference. That these these Eastern Catholic churches they have their own rites, they have their own liturgies. Um, however. They have valid sacraments. They have valid bishops. And all the bishops in those Eastern Catholic churches, they, they all um, recognize the authority of the Pope. And then we have the Greek Orthodox churches and those many churches like the Russian Orthodox Church, which don't recognize the Pope. Um, but they do have valid sacraments. Um, they do have valid bishops. Um, that's a whole different thing. Uh, about like church hierarchy and, and church history, which maybe I can spend some time in another episode about that. So again, this document will focus more on the Roman rite, right? But it also declares that all these other rites, uh, these Eastern rites, let me give you an example, Alexandrian, Arminian, Byzantium, East and West Syriac rites. Uh, these are churches in Egypt, Hungary, Syria, Romania, Iraq, India, and Ukraine. Like, so all these rites that are Eastern Catholic, that are um, recognize the, the authority of the Pope, they all have equal dig- dignity and value. And um, again, any rite, even the Roman rite, should be revised carefully. Um, revised carefully. But of course, the goal is to to meet the circumstances and needs of the modern times, as a quote, what they say. And that is the end of the introduction. Uh, so just to review the episode, um, again, we talked, I know there's a lot of politics behind the Vatican II and even this document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, but regardless, um, from my point, of, from my position, I believe this this document was handed to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so there is a purpose to study it because it's it uh, is the foundation of what our liturgy is today, and um, and it's a, a great way to understand the expectations uh, of the laity of of what we are expected to do and to learn uh, from the liturgy. We talked a little bit about the uh, the the history of Vatican II, starting with Vatican One. About a hundred years earlier, it was uh, it was I believe the the first council that was that's uh, that met in Saint Peter's, and 
the results were to to condemn the popular ideolo- ideologies during that time and to declare um, the, the doctrine of papal infallibility. Uh, and then 100 years later, 62, uh, Pope John XXIII started the, the Vatican II Council. Uh, it was a pastoral council, so the focus is not in changing or declaring new doctrine, but of evangelizing the faith, presenting the faith in new ways. And then we talked about the overview of the whole document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, recognizing that liturgy is not just the Mass, but there's, uh, there's like the Divine Office and the many different aspects of the liturgy, like the liturgical year, music and art, and sacramentals, sacraments and all that stuff. And then we talk about the introduction of the document, uh, talks about the aim of the whole council, and then we talk we talk uh, an overview of like the liturgy and that it's it's a way for the church to express the mystery of Christ um, and it has this idea of both and um, and that the liturgy should build up the laity in order to strengthen them to preach Christ and then a brief a brief um, a brief note about that this will focus on the Roman rite. And just to be aware, there are other uh, other rites in the Catholic Church that are not Roman, that have different expressions of liturgy um, in other particular areas, uh, in particular churches. But all of those churches do recognize the authority of the Pope and therefore considered Catholic. So in the next episode, we'll move on to the first chapter of the Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's called The General Principles for the Reform and Promotion of the Sacred Liturgy. Thank you again for joining me in the second episode of the Tradition with a Catholic Tea podcast, and I look forward to the next episode.